I was just mentioning uh, the community of uh, Benedictine nuns in rural Missouri uh, exhumed the remains, what they assumed would be the decayed remains of their foundress, uh, Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster. And they were amazed, astonished to discover uh, her remains in a remarkable state of preservation. Now, the word incorrupt was uh, immediately bandied about, and of course uh, the church is very cautious uh, in ever using a phrase like that, a, a term like that. But this is uh, quite the story, and it captured the imagination of Catholics, but also much of the wider world, even in secular news. Uh, this is a, a great story just in itself. But as is often the case, this remarkable phenomenon was really a sign pointing us toward something else, in this case, someone else, and that is the incredible life of Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster. To unpack uh, everything that has been happening in Missouri uh, is Catherine Hadro. Uh, Catherine is a contributor to EWTN News, a great friend, and Catherine, I know when this story first broke, we heard from you almost immediately that you wanted to get out to Missouri. Yes, I wanted to to be there and see it with my own eyes, just as the thousands of others who flocked there rearranged their Memorial Day weekend plans for the long weekend and went really, and I say this with all due respect, middle of nowhere, Missouri. Yes, it it, it was uh, very seasonably warm, I think it'd be safe to say. It's a hike to get out there. Uh, So that's a testament in itself. But what was it about the story? Because you began covering it immediately. What was it that captured the imagination? Oh, my goodness. Well, like you said, this is something that captured the attention of the faithful and non-faithful alike, because this is extraordinary. Um, This just doesn't ever really happen, very rarely in the history of the church. and Barely 200 times in in terms of formal recognition of of someone who would be deemed incorrupt. Right, compared to the more than 10,000 Catholic saints that there are in the church. So, just to be there and to to see this happening now, her body was laid out for people uh, to see for a few days and now is in a glass case um, for people who want to still go out there and see her. But this was, I mean, just to keep in mind, this abbey, it's quiet. The sisters there are not used to this kind of activity. And they told me, you know, I asked them, what was it like? You you all are constitutionally enclosed is the nature of this abbey, which means they typically have very limited contact with the outside right. world. Now thousands are coming to visit them. They said they really barely noticed only when they went into the church and they noticed the pews were absolutely packed with people because local volunteers came out and immediately helped out, helped with parking, brought water bottles, were there to assist pilgrims who were coming to visit. Now, the diocese, uh, in this case, was informed immediately about everything that was happening. And I know that they have been following the story with great interest. What has been their official statement on all of this? Well, basically what they are saying is, we understand there's a lot of interest because, as you said, her mortal remains are in this extraordinary state. But they're very clear in saying we are not to treat her like a saint. We are not to venerate her body. We are not to treat her body as a relic and what rosaries and scapulars that are being touched upon her, we are not to treat those as relics as well, that there is a very specific process and protocol that needs to take place to investigate this. Um, and the sisters have, have said the same. When you go to their website, they're, they're very clear about, um, you know, even if this is truly incorruptibility, that does not necessarily indicate sainthood as well. Right. Now, it doesn't take anything away from the 
surprise and amazement uh, right. when they actually exhumed, exhumed her. Exactly. And they shared, you know, I, I am so privileged and felt the great weight of responsibility to be there because the sisters really have been saying no to media interviews. There is a, a crew that is there doing um, a documentary, but we were the only news cameras who were permitted inside. And as far as I know, I've so far the only person to interview the sisters on camera since Sister Wilhelmina's body has been exhumed. And they shared with me, Mother Abbess Cecilia shared with me, you know, they made this decision after prayerful consideration after four years. Now is the time on the feast of St. Louis de Montfort to exhume their foundress and, as you mentioned, place her body in their church, which is a typical custom for founders and foundresses of religious communities. And they did so. And it took a few days of digging because the sisters were doing this themselves. With shovels. (laughs) With shovels. It took a few days of digging. And they quickly realized as they were lifting up the coffin, a simple wooden coffin, there was a major crack in the lid. So Mother Abbess took her flashlight, pointed it in, and she realized she saw a fully intact foot. Um, And at that point, there was immediate excitement. She said she screamed. um, And it took two weeks of cleaning because there was a layer of mold um, covering the coffin and covering Sister Wilhelmina's body. And is it correct uh, that there have been reports in media that the the lining in the coffin itself had decayed? Yes. But aside from her remarkable state of preservation, her habit is also in fairly pristine condition. Yes, and I think this is a really important point. And the sisters said very quickly they had experts come out on site to document everything that was happening. And the exactly the what was in the coffin had decayed, but her habit was intact, was an extraordinarily intact, um, which has a lot of significance, which, which we can get into as well. Yes. But the sisters, the prioress was making this point. Everything that was touching her that pointed to life her habit, which is a sign of her vocation as as a bride of Christ, her miraculous medal, her scapular even, those were still preserved. But anything in there that indicated death, including a cloth strap that was placed around her jaw to keep the jaw closed, again, standard protocol when bearing a body, that had completely decayed. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, there is a lot of significance to the habit itself. Um, but that they said the experts were almost more surprised by the habit than they were by her body. Right. Given especially that there was a crack in the coffin. Yes. So I, I, was, I used the word sign mm. uh, a few minutes ago. And the sign is pointing us to Wilhelmina Lancaster. Help us to understand who she is. Well, born Mary Elizabeth Lancaster, she was born on Palm Sunday, 1924, and she had a very pious childhood, according to her biography. Um, according to her biography, there she had apparitions of Mary at a very early Descendant age. Descendant of slaves, correct? Yes. Her maternal great-grandmother was a slave who actually converted to Catholicism. And in the biography, it's, it's really fascinating. The slave holder released her once she converted to Catholicism, saying, now that you are baptized, this would be like keeping Christ in slavery. And so it was actually her maternal great-grandmother's conversion to Catholicism that led to her freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously was planted the seed of Catholicism in her family. But she was a descendant of slaves, felt this prompting to enter the religious life at about 13. Well, you had, said something extraordinary happened mm, at the age of nine. So, so at... Well, there were a few different um, mystical. Right, her first communion. Yes, right. yes, and she so she and um, 
Jesus appeared to her, according to her biography, and said something along the lines of, you know, will you come with me? And she said as a little girl, he was so handsome. You know, how could I say no? And so she had that prompting at a young age to enter the religious life, and she did so as a teenager. Um, and at the time, there were only two religious orders um, that were devoted to black Catholics, and it was one of those that, that she entered in Baltimore, the Oblates of Divine Providence. That's right. And faced uh, a lot of issues of segregation, of course, racism as well uh, in her religious, her early religious life. There, I mean, that was, and especially in Baltimore, too. And so that's the thing. There was so much upheaval within her time in the religious life. Um, and the sisters who knew her shared, really, one of the biggest heartaches was when there were reforms being made to the liturgy and also to habits. And this is uh, one of the things that uh, prompted her, I think, to depart and join, essentially establish right. a community. Which, by the way, she did not do until she was 70 years old. Back in 1995, she established this community, the Benedictines of Mary, Queen of Apostles, which, as you said, ultimately ended up in Missouri. And now listeners may be familiar with the name of that religious order because it was a few years ago they captured headlines again before because of their chart-topping Gregorian chants. And when you go to the Abbey and you're able to join them for Mass, you can hear the beautiful singing, which again, Sister Wilhelmina had a love for the Gregorian chant. I was really struck again by the beauty of song and the beauty of silence that was present there on the Abbey. Yeah, this is a growing community too, I understand. Yes. So there's about 42 religious who are at the um, Abbey there where Sister was. And there's another community with about uh, 12 more, also in Missouri. And they told me eight more women will be entering in the fall. I, I imagine all the news stories, too, might be capturing the attention of those who are discerning as well. <laughs> this is an interesting place to go. Yes. Set aside just the, the location and everything else. But yes. It, help us understand a little bit, little bit more about her, because I know that she was a poet. Uh, she had a great sense of humor. Uh, she had a really great, obvious love for the church and Christ. But her life seemed to span so much upheaval mm -hmm. in the church, and yet her response was always very consistent. So this is actually probably what my biggest takeaway was when I went to Missouri and speaking with the sisters who knew her for about the last 20 years of her life. Um, they told me the first word they would describe to use her was lovable. She was so lovable. And the second word thing they would say to describe her is her love for the Blessed Virgin Mary. She had a great love for the Blessed Virgin Mary. But as you said, she was a poet. And so the biography that her religious community published is called God's Will. And that's for a few reasons. And by the way, you can get this biography from their website. It's very easy to look through. It's almost more like a coffee table book um, with different anecdotes from her life. But her biography is called God's Will because that was really the theme of her life. Throughout the suffering of her religious community and her obedience to her religious community through the upheaval, she offered it up for her purification. But also, God's Will is the name for what was a very revered poem that she wrote and would often recite throughout the Abbey. She would take her, uh, she would take her cane and she would thump it on the ground to a beat and, and recite the poem God's Will to the beat of that. So she had a love for language and poetry. Yeah. And is it true that she wrote a letter when she was 13 trying to join this uh, religious community? That's right. And and she wasn't quite able to enter quite immediately at <laughs> yes, that time. Yes. But yes, again, you can see at the young age, the, the piety that was there and the love for our Lord. Yeah. 
Well, Catherine, I know this is a story that we're continuing to follow. You have coverage on EWTN News Nightly, uh, I'm sorry, News in Depth tonight at 8 on EWTN. Yes. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you for going out there. And I look forward to uh, other stories that may develop coming out of this. I agree. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be with you. When we come back, we're going to talk about Christ as a sacrifice. This is Cresta in the Afternoon.